Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, it'll be helpful to have the the passage open in front of us as we look uh, this morning at this account of Sodom and Gomorrah. We live in a world of so-called tolerance, where the very thought of a day of judgment can seem utterly out of place. We live in a world where it's 2,000 years since Jesus came uh, and also promised to return. And it can seem as if all talk of a day of judgment is empty scaremongering. And yet this tale of these two cities stands as a stark warning that we need to take all warnings of God's judgment seriously. There's four things that it's important for us to see in this account this morning. First of all, there's the awfulness of Sodom's evil. The awfulness of Sodom's evil. This is no quick-tempered, hasty decision of God. This, whenever Abraham asks in the previous chapter, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is set out for us in such a way so that we can see the rightness of God's judgment. What makes Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities on the plain so terrible that they become the focus of God's wrath and judgment? Is it fair? Is it just? Well, the name Sodom has become synonymous with homosexuality. And it would be easy to assume that God destroyed the city just because of the orientation of its inhabitants and then to launch into a tirade against homosexuality. That would be a wrong assumption. Homosexual activity, which is different from inclination and orientation, is part of the issue. But it's not the whole issue And this isn't the Bible's whole teaching on homosexuality, so we're not going to make it our focus this morning because it's not the focus of the passage. So let's look at the text to see what is the nature and extent of the wickedness of these cities. In verse 1, two men uh, in appearance, actually they're angels, uh, come to the town gate. Lot is seated there. The gate is the place where the court met. As well as being the entrance to the city, it was the place uh, where the town justices and elders would meet to dispense justice. And Lot is probably, in all likelihood, a town justice. A justice of the peace, we would call him. Um, And he's seated there, not in the morning time, which was the time when cases were, were heard, but he's sitting there in the evening time. What's he doing there, that time of the day? We'll come back to that in a moment. Hold that question. But like his uncle Abraham, he's very quick to offer hospitality. Remember in the previous chapter how quick Abraham was to offer hospitality. And these men, they decline. And they say, we'll just spend the night here. It's warm. It's the Middle East. It'll be okay here. But Lot insisted strongly, we read. And the word can even be understood to mean that he he took them and he, he urged them and he manhandled them almost to his own house, saying, come on, come on, don't be staying here. Now look at verse 2 and see how he invited them. He says, come and spend the night. And then he says, and then go your way early in the morning. He doesn't want anybody to know. 
that they're in the city. He doesn't want them to be staying out in the open because this city isn't the sort of place you want a stranger to be seen and it has a reputation. Lot knows what will happen. I think that's why he's at the city gate in the evening. He's there waiting to see if any strangers come so that he can take them to safety. They go to his home, but sadly his fears are realized. The meal isn't long finished when there's a commotion outside. Now, now let's look carefully at how it's described. Uh, verses 4 and 5. Before they had all gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. All the men, not a few, not a minority of men, from every part of the city, not from some seedy, sordid quarter, the, 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 the dark end of town that nobody wants to be in, but from every quarter, the rich quarter, the poor quarter, the noble quarter, the educated, the uneducated, both young and old, the verse says. It's not just a crowd of violent youths. There's grey-headed men, elderly men, perhaps on sticks there. There's middle-aged men. There's young men. The whole male population surrounded the house, it says. Imagine how frightening that must have been. This violent mob baying for fresh meat. And nobody's ashamed of it. They're, they're, they're shouting this out together as a crowd. Bring them out here. So we can have them. Bring them here. Shameless. Violently seeking their pleasure in a brutal gang rape. And what makes it worse is that this is a culture in which hospitality and the safety of your guest is almost a sacred thing. Where even if your enemy came to your tent, you were obliged to, to feed him and make sure he left your tent in one piece. And these were guests and they, all they want to do is shamefully use them. It's utterly unthinkable. Lot bravely goes out with them. Out to them to reason. It's bold and courageous. And he starts to reason and he appeals to their conscience and he says, this is a wicked thing that you're going to do. Then he says something utterly bizarre. Maybe you're hoping I have some explanation for what he says. I'm not even going to read again what he says. It's so grotesque uh, and appalling that no father should ever think of such a thing. I don't know what he's thinking. Uh, maybe he's lived in Sodom so long that his own thinking has been skewed, or maybe he's just speaking in the sheer terror of the moment, or maybe he's counting on the respect they would have for his sons-in-law that nothing will come of the men and say, certainly not, and we're away home. Who knows? But nothing will do but that this crowd of wicked, depraved men will get their hands on the two visitors. They threaten Lot with worse they scorn his office as a judge uh, in verse 9. Say, this fellow came here as a foreigner, but now he wants to play the judge. And they seem about to lynch him or worse. Do you see the, the picture of the behavior of the people of this city? And we're not done yet. 
the angels strike the multitude with a temporary blindness. And where our Bible version here says that uh, they struck them with blindness so that they could not find the door, that's in verse 11. Actually, literally, that should be translated that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. They didn't stop. They were struck with a supernatural blindness and they kept scrabbling, trying to find the door and break it down, scratching at the walls, pounding at the the, the door, pushing and trying to feel their way towards it. Think of it. Imagine you've been struck blind and you knew it was supernatural and you knew you were engaged in some wicked activity, surely would you not fall on your knees and repent, filled with remorse? No, they plow on, determined to get these men, until they're so tired that they give up. Here's something of the grotesque depravity of these men. It is hideous. This is a judgment on a brutal, barbaric city. Where there is not only homosexual practice, which the Bible teaches is wrong, but it is carried to the next level of gang rape. And all of this is in defiance of God's design for sexuality, God's design for marriage, God's design even for community. And it's not a one-off offence. Lot knew this was going to happen. And it's not the only type of offence. If you read on in your Bibles in different places in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you find that Lot was also famous for adultery, uh, for people, for their lies, for people encouraging and equipping people to do more evil, uh, no one turning from his wickedness, uh, for arrogance, for greed, for being utterly unconcerned for the poor and needy. The sins of this city have multiplied and grown until they are a stench rising to heaven. And when God says the outcry of Sodom is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if it's as bad as they make out, it is. Of course, he didn't need to go down to see. God knew. But it was to show Abraham and us that God is not some capricious, ill-tempered, flying-off-the-handle kind of a God. This is grotesque and monstrous and hideous. And they've already had a chance of mercy. Abram had rescued them way back in chapter 14. They knew who the true God was, but now they press on in their wickedness. And God says, enough, enough. I will not allow it to multiply and multiply and multiply. That's enough. And here's the application. What a somber warning to our world as it increasingly ignores God's guidelines for all sorts of things where rudeness and crudeness and vulgarity and depravity is paraded, where Hugh Hefner, a dirty, lascivious leech, And lech of a man is described as a giant in publishing, journalism, free speech and civil rights. Where last Saturday's pro-choice march in Dublin paraded placards 
so crude and vulgar that you don't even want to see what was on them or hear what was on them. And they were being proudly paraded where TV presenters routinely make crude innuendos on television shows. I remember, I'm starting to sound like a really old man, I remember whenever suggestive song lyrics were banned on the radio, unless they're like really, really vague. Now, they're just played and broadcast. And people don't seem to care. Soberingly, we see here that God does not allow depravity to grow indefinitely. He will bring judgment and it will be fair. And that's what we see here. The awfulness of Sodom's sin. Secondly, against the backdrop of that awfulness, we want to see the sadness of Lot's lingering. The sadness of Lot's lingering. Lot is hauled back in the door. The angels tell him of the impending destruction. They tell him to warn his family and his, his connections. And there again, will not take time to unpack it, is God's kindness to Lot's family. Because Lot, although he's such a weak believer, is a believer nonetheless. And Peter And his letter describes him as a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. His his sons-in-law, his daughters, his wife seem to have no interest in God's ways. But God is going to extend mercy to the whole family because of Lot. And even though his faith is weak and flawed. How wonderful. But after the crowd is dispersed, And Lot ventures, how terrified must he have been, ventures out in the darkness of the night to the the homes of his prospective son-in-laws to warn them to escape the city. He's greeted with mockery. They think he's joking. You you imagine Lot saying, seriously, do you think I got up in the middle of tonight, the night that it's been so far, and walk down this street to your house for a laugh? There's something tragic about this verse as we see Lot. Remember back in chapter 13, Lot had been given a choice by Abraham. Which land do you want? And Lot had looked at the lovely fertile land towards the infamous city of Sodom. And he said, I'll have that land because it looks great. And he pitched his tent near Sodom. And then in chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. And now he has a position of authority in Sodom. Maybe he thought, I can live amongst them and be a witness. Maybe my righteousness will rub off on them. Where's it gone? Nowhere. The townspeople don't respect him. They ridicule him. His sons-in-law don't listen to him. They don't take his God talk seriously. Maybe if he had lived like Daniel did in Babylon, his faith out in the open, his Attitude that of defying the culture around him, standing for the truth, then Lot would have been believed. But it looks like he spent too much time flying under the radar. So that when he does speak, people say, what are you on about? That's a real warning to us, isn't it? Sometimes Christians think if I can get into such and such a position, I'll be able to have influence. Sometimes they think that I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll keep my Christianity 
down a little bit, turn the volume down a bit so that people will accept me. And then when they've accepted me, I'll be able to have an impact on them. But if you have to compromise to get there or stay there, then you've lost your credibility. Laugh at the jokes they tell, join in the gossip, silent during their backstabbing, silent at their vulgarity or blasphemy. And then sometime out of nowhere you say, this this isn't really acceptable. They look at you as if you've got nine heads. The tragedy is that no one listens to Lot. They all perish. They all perish because of Lot's attachment to the pleasures and the position and the status of Sodom. Lot went up in the world and down in his distinctiveness. And that's not the only sad thing that we read here. As we read on in verse 15, the angels are shouting, hurry, hurry. There's an urgency, but not for Lot. In verse 16 we read, he hesitated. Could also be translated, and it gives a better sense of it, he lingered. He lingered so much so they grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and the hands of his daughters and the, the men run, the angels run from the city with Lot and his family, pulling them with them. And Lot is dallying and lingering. J.C. Ryle, and go online and find J.C. Ryle's sermon on this called, And Lot Lingered. Listen to it or read it. He says this, Lot saw the angels of God standing by, waiting for him and his family to go forth. He heard the voice of those ministers of wrath, and yet he lingered. He was slow when he should have been quick. He was backwards when he should have been forward. He was trifling when he should have been hastening. He was loitering when he should have been hurrying. He was cold when he should have been hot. And Lot lingers because he's rooted in Sodom. His heart is there. His attachments are there. His wife is going to look back. Now don't for a moment think that that was a, just a, a curiosity glance over her shoulder. What's happening back there? The angels get it. When they say, don't look back in verse 17, there's nothing magical about the looking back, but they knew that Lot and his wife were so attached to Sodom and it's their home there and the values and the the, the status and everything that they had there. They knew they were so attached that they would look back with regret as they saw what was happening. That's why she is turned into a pillar of salt. Her heart is too much in Sodom. And Lot isn't so different. His heart is in Sodom. Thankfully enough is running. But he lingered. He lingered. And then he says, verses 18 to 20, see that little city? Now he had been told to get out of the plane. And he says, well actually no, I'd like to live in one of the cities on the plane. Here he is stopping for a debate. I'm really tired. Volcanic sulfur and lava is going to fall on the cities, and he's saying, I'm too tired to run. At least when Abraham had pleaded for the cities, Abraham had done it because he was concerned for the people of the cities and for God's honor and glory. Lot just says, I want you to spare that city for me, for my sake. How sad is his attachment to the very thing that has nearly killed him? George Best, 
going back to the bottle after how many uh, liver replacements. A person who's been diagnosed with lung cancer and has been cured and they insist on continuing to smoke. That's Lot here. Look at what he is going to lose. His home, his wealth, his backbone, his moral discernment, his witness, his integrity, and his family. Surely Lot has to be one of the most tragic figures in all of Scripture. And his lingering love of the world's pleasures and approvals and status is going to cost him everything he treasured. Let me ask you, are you lingering? Has God warned you? Maybe like Lot, after his near brush with death in chapter 14, you've had a near miss. But God spared you and you haven't paid any heed. Are you lingering? Are you lingering trying to keep a foot in both camps? You know you need to abandon, to flee, but you delay. Do you linger? Do you want to be well thought of at the gate amongst your friends, your schoolmates, your work colleagues, your relations, the people you socialize with? What would they think of you if you really lived out your faith? Are you lingering? Oh, we see the danger. Lot just about escapes. Look at Lot's wife. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will will preserve it. Here's the sadness of Lot's lingering and all it lost him. Thirdly, let's see the graciousness of God's rescue. Do you see it? I don't need to say much about it, do I? There's Lot. There's his attraction to Sodom. There's his rootedness to it. There's his persistent lingering and dallying. And against that background, the rescue of Lot is a thing of grace. Lot has been so infected by the values of the people that he can't bear to run even when judgment is coming. And he deserves to be left. But the angels take him and herd him out of the city, manhandling him, pushing, cajoling. Here's God's grace. In salvation, we might be tempted to think that we're so much better than Lot. But the truth is that we're much more like Lot than we choose to think. We're more like Lot than Abraham. We don't want to leave our sinful ways behind. We linger, we dally, we sit on the fence, we keep one foot in the spotlight of the approval of people and one foot in the spotlight of God's approval. We're not striding heroically out of Sodom. We're procrastinating and prevaricating and postponing. And yet God in his kindness for the Christian hasn't abandoned us to the results of our folly. Not to all of them. Yes, there are consequences to our folly. And how utterly tragic they are for Lot. His chameleon-like faith is going to cost him and have catastrophic consequences. And so too with us. Foolish decisions Lingering and fence-sitting have consequences. But God in his mercy doesn't forsake his people. And sometimes it seems as if he manhandles us, pushes us forcibly away from situations and circumstances so that we don't destroy ourselves, 
just as he did with Lot. What grace there is in God. If he is pushing you away from a circumstance, don't linger. Get away from it. Hear him and listen, lest he let you have the consequences like Lot's wife and it destroy you. How much do we owe to God's persistence and his grace? And then finally, as well as a glimpse of God's grace to people who don't deserve it, like us, we have a preview of God's judgment. A preview of God's judgment. In verse 23, we read that the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Sunrise on that fateful day. The day and the time, rather the time, when Lot should have been coming as judge to the city gate to sit there in judgment. But another judge is coming to Sodom on that day. Here's the response of the judge to the awful wickedness and awful depravity and greed and arrogance and brutality of these towns and cities. He says, enough, enough. There is a limit to God's patience and that line has been crossed. They have had their witness. They've had their warnings. They've had their opportunity. And now God says, that's it. There's some form of violent volcanic earthquake occurs but it's from God and these cities are utterly obliterated this land had once been rich and lush and green it's described in Genesis 13 as like the garden of the Lord like Eden but now it is left a smoking ruin a dry and barren desolate area even to this day. Imagine in Sodom. Those men who the night before had been looking to party. And as they get up that morning, little did they know the previous night was their last night on earth. Imagine Lot's sons-in-law. The awful realization as the sulfur started to fall as the earth started to break open and lava spurts out. But it was too late. Lot wasn't joking. He was right. And why is this in our Bibles? It's here as a preview of that great and terrible day when the judge of all the earth returns. Jesus, we read in Luke 17, verse 26, says, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. This is a foretaste, friends. This is a preview. It's not the full thing. It's a sample of what it's going to be like. And people will be getting on with ordinary everyday life, eating and drinking, buying cattle and sheep, going to the mart, planting, getting married, harvesting, building homes, going to their places of work. And then suddenly the world is going to be destroyed. And that last day will start like any other day. 
how unutterably serious this is. How this should cause us to warn people to flee from the judgment to come. How this should cause us to pray hard for people. How this should cause us to be burdened for those around us. It doesn't mean that we need to be running up to everyone and grabbing them and shaking them and saying, do you realize? It doesn't necessarily mean that. But surely what it does mean is that when people dismiss us for what we have said to them and we should be speaking to them and praying for opportunities to speak to them but when they dismiss what we say it's not like water off a duck's back to us that it matters to us that it, they see in our faces that this is deadly serious that we say to them it may be a nothingness to you but this is important that they see in our faces and in our manner That this is urgent and vital. This chapter is a glimpse of what lies ahead for a world that rejects God. Two things I want to say as we finish. One sobering and the other stunning. The sobering thing is this. There is one thing worse than being a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's being a civilized churchgoer who ignores Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Woe to you, Capernaum! Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to Hades. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum had heard Jesus preach his first sermon. They had seen his miracles. They had had the warnings. They knew the story of Jesus inside out. And Jesus says, it will be better to have lived in Sodom than to have lived in Capernaum. It will be worse for people who have sat in churches and heard about Jesus than it will have been to have been there in Genesis 19 on that dreadful day. To have rejected Jesus is a terrible thing. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, today is the day. It has started like any other day. Who knows how it will finish, either for our world or for us. That's the sobering thing. Let me finish with the stunning thing. This chapter should disturb us. We should be rightly filled with horror. This is what our sin deserves. But remember this. Before he comes to judge, he came to be judged. The judge came to stand alone as it were in Sodom and Gomorrah and to take all that judgment on himself. That's what he was doing at the cross. Imagine as it were if it had happened at Sodom that that God himself had appeared in the city and said, uh, standing with his arms outstretched as the burning lava fell on him and said, come to me, come to me, shelter under me. 
And as he was reduced to a smoking pile of ash, we would crawl out from under the ashes. Would we not be stunned that the judge of all the earth that would do that for us? And that's what happened at the cross. And as we look at horror at Sodom and Gomorrah, we must stand in awe and wonder at what happened at the cross. As Sodom and Gomorrah is a pale reflection of what the day of judgment will be, it is a pale reflection of what Calvary was. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, is that not far, far, far beyond doing right? That the judge would step into the dock and take the sentence on himself. The judge of all the earth offers to do that for all of us here this morning. To take judgment before he comes to bring it. Let us ensure that we have put our trust in him. And that unlike Lot, we go away determined to live for such a God who would do such a thing for us. And not to linger and not to wear camouflage so that we blend in. But that we would stand out and speak up for such a God to such a people who face such a destiny. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Let's stand if we're able. Father in heaven, these are sobering, sobering truths. O Lord, have mercy on our world. It does not deserve it. Show mercy. Turn people to you. Let them not hesitate. Let them not think you are joking. But turn them to you, O Lord God. Let them see that with you, as we started the service this morning, there is an abundance of of mercy and forgiveness, abundance and forgiveness for anyone and everyone who would come. So let them come. And Lord, we pray that any here who are as yet outside of Christ's sheltering arms would come to him and find shelter from the wrath that is to come. And O Lord God, this morning, forgive us for our lingering, for our dallying, for our toying with sin. Lord, shake us up. Let us be more distinctive. Give to us an air of urgency and importance as we speak and live for you in this world. The importance, not of ourselves, not self-importance, but the importance of what we are speaking to people of. And Lord, thank you, thank you for Jesus, the judge of all the earth, who before he came to judge, came, before he comes to judge, came to be judged and to bear such an awful punishment. We thank you for him. We worship him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.